Would you believe I don't really have a lot of experience with this franchise? In fact, this is actually the first time I've really sat down and played all the way through Infamous 1. I've played part of it before, but I never actually got to go all the way through it. Not on purpose, it's worth noting. This isn't one of those, ah, oh, I hate this game. And this wasn't one of those, ah, oh, this is just a coffee thing. I just didn't have time. I was working on other things when this game came out. In fact, I didn't even have a PS3 when this game came out. And then I got a PS3, and it, any of you remember that thing where I was like, hey, we're giving away some games for free because of the security thing? And Infamous was one of the games I got. And a friend of mine gave me a copy of Infamous 2, which I've also never played. And then uh, Infamous Second Son, Infamous 3, comes out. And, you know, I kind of followed the story of that one a little bit. And a friend of mine told me that was great. And I'm like, sweet! But, by again, just by more or less circumstance, I never actually sat down to play them. So I sat down to play it, and it will probably surprise you... Dramatic pause. No, I'm, I'm just messing. <laughs> it was a good game. I did enjoy Infamous 1. I kind of, it's kind of weird playing this game now. I mean, given that we recently just had Marvel Spider-Man on the PS4, and a couple years ago we had Zelda Breath of the Wild, it's kind of weird playing this game in the immediate wake of those games. And I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but if anything, the construction of this game felt like a really weird merger between those kinds of open movement games. You know, that, that's what I, that's what I mean about that. Like, obviously Marvel, Marvel Spider-Man PS4 had its own little thing going. But just getting from point A to point B was this, was a treat, right? It was very enjoyable. It's probably the thing that stuck with me most after that game. And then in Breath of the Wild, it was the same thing. You had the ability to lunge up, the ability to glide, and the ability to climb over basically anything in addition to the other things. So it was actually enjoyable getting from point A to point B. Infamous felt like halfway there, like it was halfway enjoyable to get from point A to point B, because while it's really fun to go gliding on the telephone poles, for example, or the telephone lines, I should say, at the same time, every now and again, you could just tell that it's not a truly open world. It's more like it's a series of connecting paths that allow you to go from point A to point B. It feels a lot like a Grand Theft Auto game in its own right, but ultimately, the more I played it, the more I started thinking, you know what? This game reminds me of like an in-between step of more modern games and Sly 2. Now, <laughs> duh, I suppose is what you're going to tell me here. But no, I mean that sincerely. Like a lot of the combat felt generally the same as in Sly 2, which I just finished. Uh, obviously not last week, but the video for that will go live last week. For me, it was actually a couple weeks ago when I finished Sly because I've been working on some other stuff. And uh, so, But the combat felt very, very similar in a good way. You know, it, it felt like uh, there was a decent amount of toolkit, there were a decent amount of options available to you to play through. Um, it felt like Sly 2 was the hub-based thing. This feels more like taking the next step up from that, you know, basically going from, well, to use a more direct example, going from something like Mario's Galaxy, you know, the hub thing there, up to something closer to Mario Odyssey, right? So I'm with it, by the way. All of this is a compliment. Now, I can't talk about Infamous without talking about the morality thing. Good or evil. <laughs> this is right about when the morality thing was really getting big in gaming. The late PS2, early PS3, and of course the PC era of that era. It was a big thing. It was constantly, it was everywhere. We had the Mass Effect, um, we had the KOTOR thing, you know. This was just a direction that gaming was really bearing down on. I'm not sure why. 
I think it's just because a lot of people enjoyed it enough that enough developers latched onto it and started using it going forward. It's kind of died out since then a little bit. But one of the things I find most interesting about the morality system here, from a gameplay perspective, is the fact that it really... <sighs> okay. I actually have like three or four things I want to talk about, and I'm just hesitating, because I'm not sure which I want to talk about first. I suppose the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that originally there was no good option. Right? Originally, I've seen several interviews, especially by uh, Chris Zimmerman, about the construction and uh, analysis of these games. And it turns out that they wanted to do a thing where there was just the evil playthrough. But then they're like, eh, maybe we should give them a good option, right? But that'll just be for fun. You know, it'll be for funsies. The evil option will be the canon playthrough. And then they got it out and had several people playing it and playtesting it. And everyone liked the good option. Uh, not on everyone, I'm of course being exaggerative, but more people preferred being good than evil. Which is funny, actually. Fallout 3, that's another one that was about this time. It, because usually when developers talk about this thing, they talk about how their players love being evil in their games. But apparently it was the opposite here. And they ended up kind of taking the good ending and making that canon for Infamous 2. And restructuring Infamous 2 from that perspective. Now I stress that. Because knowing that the evil ending was originally canon makes a lot of things make more sense when going through Infamous 1. There's a lot of more parallels and foreshadowing and hints that technically go nowhere unless you assume the evil ending was the canon one. But I'm talking more of a gameplay perspective. Um, so obviously I didn't play evil, and I never will, but... <laughs> I have seen several... Uh, so first of all, I talked to a friend of mine who has played evil. And he shared stories with me. And I watched several videos of gameplay who were doing evil stuff, like, you know, evil ending, final boss with Kessler, that kind of a thing. And I'm like, okay, sure. And watched what kind of stuff he could do. And, you know, just evil playthrough, skipping forward a bit until he has more powers. Because what I wanted to see was how different the powers were. This is one of the biggest things that usually happens in these kind of games, that if you're super good, you get X, and if you're super evil, you get Y. And this is just my impression. Remember, I didn't actually play as evil. But as the good... It felt, I'm trying to think how to phrase this, it felt like I had a very precise toolkit. Like everything I had was very utilitarian. <laughs> Stun, revive, shockwave, you know, all this stuff. It felt like all of the tools I had were designed, excuse me, to very quickly and efficiently deal with any problems I was, situate, I was, I was running into. Nothing flashy, nothing cool. In fact, in many ways, it felt a little boring. The evil powers look awesome. In fact, they just look generally cool. And I noticed, and again, based on the, the videos I was watching, that the evil powers do a lot more AoE damage in general, which also means a lot more collateral damage, like to nearby civilians who may or may not happen to be in the area. Which makes sense, doesn't it? I do kind of like that perspective. But I also find it funny because... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. One of the things I find strangest about this game is that the game lets you choose good actions or evil actions constantly. Now, that may sound weird, but the only way to really play this game is all good or all evil. I mean, I know there, I know there's challenge runs for doing in-between stuff, but what I mean by that is all of the rewards, all the in-game design stuff is designed to be pure good or pure evil. Famous or infamous, right? Why not just lock that into a choice? Especially early on in the game. Do you want to be evil or do you want to be good? 
And there you go. You just choose the evil actions all the time, or you choose the good actions all the time. I, I don't know. It just felt like a weird thing because there's not really any in-between like there can be in, like, for example, Mass Effect or uh, Dragon Age or something similar. I don't know. Food for thought. I did... Uh, <laughs> I did very much enjoy the... I'm trying to think how to phrase this. I did enjoy just the general parkour. Like, as I said before, it feels like it's a little bit on rails and a little bit set piecey, but at the same time, those set pieces are connected to each other smoothly enough that for the most part, I didn't even notice. And this is a good move on their part. I mean, they're making you go around a city and you basically can't drive. You need to have some way to get from point A to point B that is either quick or enjoyable. And I mentioned the rail grinding, that's or the telephone pole grinding. That's probably the best one overall. But I do think that was fun. And I just realized I just don't have much else to say about the gameplay of this game. That's so strange for me. Because usually I'd, I'd like to spend a little bit of time really talking about the gameplay. But honestly, it just felt like a competent game. It really did play in many ways like a sly game. And again, I'm not complaining about that. It's also even more funny when you consider the fact that this is apparently originally supposed to be Sony's answer to Animal Crossing. It was going to be this big cartoony thing, you know, ah, and it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because again, the, you know, Sucker Punch, the creators of the Sly series. But what I find even more interesting is that this, this game is uh, dark. Yeah, it's pretty dark. The game basically starts with the death of several thousand people by accident, and is really messed up on multiple levels, and in both implies and then outright states a lot of really horrible things happening throughout the course of it. It's dark. It reminds me of Watchmen, the comics, in many ways, good and bad. But I bring that up because, again, that also makes sense if you were paying attention during the Sly Cooper series, at least the first two games, which are the ones I'm aware of. There's some pretty dark stuff going on in those, so... Yeah, I mean, having to have an entire city being infused with a hate plague in order to, you know, it's, it's pretty messed up. Before I go any further and actually start talking about the story, I want to share a story of my own with you guys. So there I was, sitting down to play Infamous for the first time. This wasn't this time, this was back when I first picked up this game. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to play Infamous, this is cool. Huh? Wait, why is it doing these little comic book things? Wait, so this is a story about me getting... This is a... This is a comic book story! <laughs> I was actually genuinely surprised, because nothing of the marketing material... It was all about good call or evil call, and you'll have the power to do whatever. And all of the marketing wasn't focused on the fact that this is a superhero game series. And yet, the more I think about it, the more it makes perfect sense that it is. Think about this for a second. How many game ideas can you come up with right now, off the top of your head, for games that would be useful or interesting or fun to do in a video game setting? Or, excuse me, in a comic book setting, right? DC, Marvel, Dark Horse, whatever, pick one, it doesn't matter. Just picture that, you know, capes, as I like to say, just capes. You know, you could have the strategy game, you could have the city-building game, you could have the management game, you could have the, the Telltale-style game, you could have the XCOM-style game, you could have the open-world expansive game, you could have... I mean, I could keep going. There are so many game options that sound really awesome and fun. I mean, as I just referenced, Marvel's Spider-Man over on the PS4 just last year, right? And yet, we don't get a lot of those. Not really. I mean, there are certainly licensed games coming up, but we don't have the kind of variety we should. And the answer why is so obvious. Because licensing is expensive and automatically adds certain uh, limitations as well as financial obligations to crafting such a game. 
By contrast, if you make a completely new comic book universe that is yours, that you own, that follows some of the same general rules of comic book dumb, you know, the capes concept, but otherwise is its own setting, well, licensing fees be gone, and now you can just do whatever you want with it. And I feel, I could be wrong, I wasn't able to find a specific interview on this one, but I feel like that was at least part of the inspiration here. Like, they wanted to do something like this, and then they said, screw it, let's just make our own. You know, we've got conduits instead of mutants or metas or whatever else you want to call them, and we've got the whole idea of uh, the race sphere <laughs> and the ability to, to absorb people's energy in order to augment other people. You know, all of the concepts of this setting in many ways follow the typical pseudoscience rules of your typical comic book setting, right? I'm not complaining, it's just it's the thing that really surprised me at first. If anything, I kind of hope that we get more infamous in the future, having only played the first game, but you know, being aware of the second game and aware of the third game. It'd be nice to see them going f even further with this. <sighs> Anywho, <clears throat> that being said, they do seem uh, trying to be trying to destroy the world as quickly as they possibly can in all three of these games, but I don't want to spoil future games. Uh, speaking of which, I'll be trying not to discuss Infamous 2, since that would obviously be very relevant to this game. Uh, and I will definitely not be discussing Infamous uh, Second Son, so let's just leave that at the door. So, first thing I want to talk about is the idea of what superpowers do to a setting. Now, once upon a time, I was discussing a story idea. I, I'm sorry to go on a, a tangent here. It was called The Primes. And The Primes was set in an alternate Earth. And I was doing a stream once discussing this and discussing all of the, the ways that this Earth was completely different before superpowers showed up. And then one of my viewers, uh, either in a YouTube comment or on the stream, I actually don't remember anymore, said, why would you waste the potential of this story on a stu stupid uh, superhero or, or a comic book story? But to me, the answer to that is incredibly obvious, because there's a great deal of storytelling potential in the altered dynamic of everything when you introduce personal power into the equation. Because that's what superheroes really are. They are personal power made manifest. Now, I've actually talked about this before. Personal power technically doesn't even exist in real life. I mean, you could argue that it does, but at such a ridiculously low level that it's li literally like a gunshot or a stab or a punch. That's personal power. But when we introduce real personal power into a setting, everything gets shaken up, right? And that's exactly what we see in this game. Alden is probably my favorite example of this, in, in general. The, the idea of someone who was a nobody, who was literally homeless and living on the streets in destitution, suddenly gains superpowers. And the consequences that that can have on the reality around them and the impact that that would have and the significance of it is awesome. Because there's so much that can be said and done when you disrupt the status quo so severely. And this game does touch on those points at several points, like I just mentioned with Alden. Um, we also find that, you know, what happened with the drug dealers and how they decide to kind of go full tilt, oh no, we're going to actually try and completely control the situation. And we see how the various agencies of the government try to, and fail at, accommodate this new status quo. This new, because the entire idea is, imagine if you've built an entire pattern. And this pattern will fit perfectly on this specific type of substance, or surface. So you place the, lay the pattern down, but you look down, and it's a new surface. The surface has fundamentally altered. Like, instead of being... Uh, this analogy is kind of breaking apart, I admit. But, you know, instead of being like glass, it's water. 
And so all of a sudden it just melts. It's like, whoa, because all of a sudden all that infrastructure, all that effort, all that time, all of those concepts, all those inter interconnecting points of political power don't apply the same way anymore. They still apply, but the rules changed, right? It's like you're, you go from playing backgammon to Formula One. It's, it's a bit of a jump. And this game does a good job of showing that. We even see this in Cole himself, the idea of someone who was basically a, a, an aggressively average person. Someone who was pretty good at parkour, but otherwise he was just a messenger. Even had to lie about it to his mother, right? Or she had to lie about it to him. They weren't really that clear about that. But anyways, um, that actually adds so much to the enjoyment of this game for me because the creators were obviously cognizant of this new dynamic and tried to show that as much as they could using the potential of their setting. One of the things that caught my attention most was the fact that animals can be conduits too. That's interesting. Now, I don't pretend to be a super expert on comics, but I don't believe there's ever been meta-animals or uh, mutant animals within either DC or Marvel. I know there's specific examples of specifically engineered or specific exceptions, like the super dog or the super horse or the super the super animal family, I get that there's exceptions to the rule, but for the most part we don't see that kind of thing where just regular animals can, for lack of a better way to put it, awaken abilities and start using them. Unfortunately the games don't really do anything about that. In fact I wouldn't even know about that except for the dead drops. But I, I just think that's an interesting concept. So we see this accommodation to the new status quo thing like I just referenced. And probably the most fascinating character who accommodates to this is Zeke. Now, later on in the uh, in the game, opposite episode, I've been doing a lot of Star Trek lately. Later on in the game, Zeke actually flat out says, I thought this was a new shot for me. You know, new quarantine, time to make a new life for myself. Now, that actually is very indicative of his personality in general, but it also kind of showcases what was going through the minds of a lot of people. Keep in mind, right before we have the scene where he just kind of talks about the new setup that they've got, Right before that, we find out that there's mass rioting and murdering and all sorts of horrible, terrible stuff going on around the city in the, in the wake of the quarantine. That a total lack of control is what has effectively been the consequence of this action, of this new quarantine. <laughs> and that's basically Zeke in a nutshell, isn't it? Because Zeke is extremely selfish. Now, I don't, I, I don't want to call Zeke evil. I actually uh, saw an interview that mentioned the idea that Zeke was originally supposed to be the one who actually kills Trish. And the developers were like, nah, no, no, that's not Zeke. And I agree, that isn't Zeke. Zeke is someone who can do an evil act, but not really for evil intent. Easily the most ex obvious example of this is when he had the sphere and tried to activate it. Nothing happened, of course, because he's not a conduit. And based on what I understand of the rules of this setting, you either are or you aren't. This is not something that can be made happen. So, he's screwed. He will never have superpowers. But his action there did make perfect sense. If you've been paying attention to almost the entire game, he has been constantly bringing it up in very casual conversation and in very casual voice acting, just, yeah, you're the one with superpowers, or, yeah, I didn't get superpowers like you, or, yeah, lightning powers are super awesome, and just talking about it over and over and over. And when you actually get to that mission where you take the sphere from Alden, he actually mentions, no, we should just use it ourselves, and we'll get superpowers, and then things will be awesome. And it's like... Zeke, dude, do you think of anybody but yourself? And that's why I call him selfish, not evil. Probably the best way the game shows this is by contrasting Zeke with Trisha. 
Now, Trisha is basically the exact opposite. She is completely selfless. She is still a complicated individual who has her own emotions and perspectives, and Lord knows she is, to put this as nicely as I possibly can, not nice towards Cole for quite a while, and actively rude to him for quite a while. I'm not saying I blame her, but it is, well, it gets grating after a while, let's just put it that way. But regardless, she is nevertheless someone who constantly is trying to help others around her. In fact, even when you first get splurted with the tar, one of the first things she does is say, here, come with me, I will take care of this. But I'm never doing this again. I hate you, Sundari. Anyways. <clears throat> but I bring that up because the types of missions both of them give really highlight this. I wrote down two specific missions that I wanted to bring your attention, because I, I did them side by side. One... Trish asks you to go and... Did I say Trisha earlier? I think I did, didn't I? Trish asks... I know someone like named Trisha in real life. Trish asks you to go help fix this bridge because it's causing issues and there's gang fights and, oh my God, there's gun fights. So you go and help this bridge in order to help save some of the nearby people and restore some order to the city. Cool. Then Zeke asks you to go find this guy and rescue him because he's sweet on his sister. Now, this actually gets worse the more you go into these missions, but that's all I really need to say. Most of Zeke's missions are basically, go do errands for me. Most of Trisha's missions are, go do errands for other people. And thus you can see the perspective in contrast. This is also shown... So, what I'm trying to say is that it's not that there's good NPCs and bad NPCs. It's slightly more dynamic than that. There's actually four axes that we see throughout the course of the game in terms of the major NPCs. Now, Zeke is on the self-centered, but still good. Both of them are good. Whereas Trish is on the selfless, but good. On the other side, we see the two evil axis, which is also, let's call them morally aligned and morally unaligned. Because we have Moya and John. Now, the thing I like most about them is Moya lies to you from the word go, manipulates you constantly, treats you like crap, and basically is very aggressive and abrasive at every opportunity. She is never nice to you, even when you finally realize the truth of it. And she's, she's trying to justify herself. She never apologizes. She never says that what she did was wrong. She just says, well, no, this is what has to happen. You still have to follow me. You still have to do what I say, Cole. By contrast, John is extremely forthright and up, up, up front with you about everything. Very honest and very open about everything. He also comes across as more professional. I don't know if that's just me. Like, for me, Moya came across as someone who... <sighs> I don't want to use this word, but I feel like she's more corrupt. More slimy. More, you know, oozing her way through a conversation. By contrast, John was a breath of fresh air. Very crisp, very polite, very professional. This is what we have to do, this is what we have. 43 seconds. Just bam, bam, bam. I loved the interactions with him, even though almost all of them were just over the, the phone. Although I guess the same could be said of Moya. And thus we see another dynamic perspective between the two and the way at which both of them interact with you. Because again, Moya, even if you do things right, will yell at you. John, even if you do things wrong, will say, all right, let's try and fix this. The attitude is the difference. You can see how both of them technically align themselves on the evil axis. And I'm really putting that in quote-unquote here because, let's be honest, basically every character in this game is actually a shade of gray, which is part of the point, actually. But, you know... Of, of the four quad that we've generated here, those two line on the lower end of the quad. Which actually is interesting. I mentioned earlier that nobody's really black or, or white in this 
morass of gray, of gray, of gray. <laughs> this morass of gray. This applies especially to basically everyone else, but most strongly to Kessler. Now I'm going to pause for a moment because you're going to be like, well, hang on, don't you have anything to say about Sasha? No. Even after I defeated Sasha, I'm sitting here and I've got her name jotted down. I don't have anything to say about her. She's crazy. Um, she makes more sense if the evil ending is canon. Because in Sasha, if you're paying attention, she says this outright, that the power of being a conduit eventually changes and alters you to the point where you become a worse person, where you d d d dissolve into the kind of degenerate that she was. I mean, she was messed up on multiple levels. Obviously, at least part of that is because of the fact that she was, you know, Kessler's ex-girlfriend and Kessler's Cole, so, you know, confusing the two. Oh, yeah, spoiler alert. But I mentioned that because other than her, she, the writers did a good job with her, don't mistake me. In fact, they portrayed someone who was crazy. Actually, I should rephrase that. They portrayed someone who was insane. But they also told, made her say a lot of correct and accurate things. She was in many ways a form of exposition and a great form of foreshadowing. If you pay attention to what she's saying, and I knew the ending walking into this because, you know, Infamous 2 and Infamous 3. But if you pay attention to what she's saying, almost everything she says makes at least one degree of sense. The only thing that changes is her perspective as she's saying it, sometimes in mid-sentence. Anyways, but I don't have as much to say about Sasha other than that idea. And that makes me wonder if that's why the evil ending was originally canon. The idea that built into this, the lore of the setting, maybe becoming a conduit always makes you go at the end. It would certainly explain the beast, wouldn't it? I don't know for certain. Curious what you guys think on that one. Either way, let's talk about Kessler. I do like Kess the fact that Kessler basically has all of your powers just better. Which brings up my very first question. One of the things that, this is kind of getting into Infamous 2 and Infamous 3, but one of the things that's kind of implied is that conduits basically always get stronger. Like, bit by bit, they will slowly grow in power over time. Now, it's not a guarantee, but any any conduit throughout the series who takes the time to practice and train and, you know, absorb more power always gets stronger. I wonder if that's just normal. Like, if, if all conduits have that inevitable potential to be at the world cracker level, like the Beast eventually became. Both of them, I guess. I'm not actually sure. And as ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. Oh, it's worth noting that I didn't have a chance to get a hold of most of the comics for this game, especially since, well, if, I was going to make more of an effort and just go ahead and buy them, but then it turned out most of those comics are after this game and, well, not quite as relevant, and mostly just discuss what happens to the characters in between the two. Although I do know what happened to Moya. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> Getting back to the point. So, Kessler... The game constantly tries to posit the idea that Kessler knew that he had to create the perfect person, that he had to mold Cole into the one who could defeat the beast, and I don't buy it. I'm serious. <laughs> I don't mean to drop the, uh, drop the mic like that, but... That doesn't make sense to me. And I, s I sat and I thought, and I was like, okay, why doesn't this make sense to me? Now, my very first thought was, well, obviously, if we go by the original intention that evil was the canon ending, this makes perfect sense, because the intention there is that the more powerful of a conduit you become, the more evil you get, the more messed up you get. So Kessler was still, it was this evil, crazy super dude, because he was that powerful, because he had regressed that far. And it's implied that that's exactly what happened to the Beast. Remember, just in this game, 
<laughs> we haven't revealed anything about the beast yet. So this whole presentation, this whole perspective is the kind of thing that just makes you go, okay. And I feel like they, once they restructured that, it's like, okay, well, hang on. How do we make this work? Well, he was doing this for the greater good. He was doing just to help everyone. It's kind of the almost excuse. But I just don't buy that. What I see, what I see in Kessler is someone who went insane. Not because of his powers, but because he spent however many years, they don't actually say in this one, uh, running from the beast, watching the world get devastated, destroyed, and massacred. Oh, and then lost his loved ones, the only people he actually cared about most. I think he snapped. So he goes back and you know makes this decades-long plan to take over the First Sons and, and slowly rise to power and establish the quarantine and make sure that he builds the ray sphere. It's implied in later works that he knew about the ray sphere from his timeline, so he took knowledge of it back and then used that to basically make it earlier than it otherwise would show up. All that kind of stuff. Anyways, given what the beast ends up being, doesn't surprise me that much, but I'm getting off topic again. <laughs> My point being, I think that Kessler legitimately lost it and reached a point of mental disconnect. Just like Sasha couldn't quite understand that she was a drug lord who was trying to mind-control the citizens of the city in order to serving her whims in order to fight back against Kessler while she simultaneously desperately wants Kessler back and not fully being able to distinguish Kessler from Cole. In other words, there's it basically think of an equation, but, but variables are missing. And so what's, what's left here is something that is wrong, something that might literally not even be an accurate mathematic formula, right? That's what I mean when I say that I think Kessler lost it. I think that he goes back and he says, okay, well, I'm going to make this better this time. And I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm just going to make sure that Cole is super powerful, and I'm going to kill Trish and everyone around him so he can be the horrible person necessary to stop the beast, and everything will be fine. Now, again, this makes more sense with the original can canon ending of being evil, because then we add dramatic irony on top of all of this. The idea that he has decided to raise up Cole to be the superpower, and, well, evil Cole is really, really evil. I mentioned earlier there's no black and whites, and even Kessler, I would say, is a particular form of gray, probably right, right about here on the, on the chart. But Cole, evil Cole, is really, really evil. Thus the idea being that in order to stop the beast, he made something much worse, which is a fairly typical storytelling trope. I mean, Godzilla, right? The original Godzilla. But again, I feel like what was happening was more along the lines of... So this is, this is getting into full interpretation. So he had the disconnect. So I think there was at least some part of him that was like, I'm going to make things better this time. But I don't think his desire to turn Cole into the super weapon was really at the forefront of his motivation. I think this is mostly about... pain. Hear me out. One of the things I have unfortunately learned over the years is when you're in a certain level of pain, physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, you lash out more than you otherwise would. You're far more acerbic and vicious than you actually are. I'm sure some of you understand what I mean by that. Now, Kessler went through significant emotional and mental pain, and probably went through a significant amount of physical pain as well. With the amount of pain that he went through, I think for him it was all about lashing out. 
Now, there's still some of whatever he was inside there. You know, he's still got that picture. And so he still moves forward with this plan. But with the amount of time, power, and resources he had access to, he had dozens of other ways to go about this. But none of those would have involved hurting as many people as this way. I think he wanted them to hurt. And when I say them, I say them very vaguely on purpose. I think he wanted to just lash out. Lash out at the cull who never had to go through all this crap. The, the nobody who's just a bike messenger. Lash out at the people who would you know, allow this problem to happen. Lash out at the government, which basically handed over the world to the beast. You know, etc., etc. And so he creates this situation in which things are arguably worse than in the original timeline. The only thing that prevents them from becoming truly worse is the fact that good coal is actually the canon ending. And if you decide to be good coal, well, you, you prove yourself to be the better person, basically. You go through the same relative pain, but you come out of it better, not worse. This is one of the things I've talked about many, many times in real life as well as in fiction. When a human being goes through some hell... They either come out of it with the best of themselves or the worst of themselves, or some gradient there, there in between. And it's very clear that Kessler came through this and just came out with the worst of himself. He was a monster, in my opinion. But I don't think he was completely evil. I think he was a... When I say monster, I shouldn't use that word because that's a misuse. He was a mess. Whereas Cole goes through all this crap and comes out of it with the best of himself. Someone who says, you know what? Even though people hate me, even though people fear me, even though the world is against me, I don't care. And he decides to help people anyways. Probably my favorite bit of this is right at the beginning. The game sets this tone very early on. In fact, one of the things I noticed was that the game almost feels like it's trying to push you towards being evil, because one of the first things that happens is you can choose to let the people get the food or not. Remember that? It's one of the very first morality choices. And if you choose to let them help you get the food... After the news broadcast thing happens, they all turn at you and yell at you and say, hey, and, he, and Cole's like, I got you the food, what? I point that out because I feel like that was like, okay, you can be good, but you won't be rewarded for it. Go be evil. It's just kind of heartening to know that players decided to go good anyways. But I digress. You'll notice I haven't really talked about Cole yet. Cole is arguably the least interesting character in this game overall, and I don't mean that as an insult. Rather, Cole is more of a vehicle for other characters to be expounded upon and decided upon. Cole is still kind of the same sarcastic, gruff person. Whether he's good or evil, it's just, it's a matter of whether he is a cynical, bitter bastard who is trying to help people, or a cynical, bitter bastard who is the incarnation of pure evil itself. I am exaggerating only slightly. Seriously, he's really messed up if you go pure evil. So, <laughs> and he looks really cool. Black and red lightning, yeah. Um, you know, just Kessler has white lightning, by the way. Interesting little tidbit there. So I mention this because Cole himself, well, he's a he's a typical viewpoint character. He's not there to be a character per se. He's there for, to be a vehicle for the type of story that you, the player, want to see. Do you want to see a story of a hero, or do you want to see the story of a villain? I mean, there's a reason this game was named Infamous, not Famous, right? As ever, excuse me, as ever, I would like to hear your guys' thoughts on this. If you think Cole, there's more to Cole, what do you think about the Kessler situation? If anybody has anything to add about Sasha, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know she shows up and actually helps Cole in the, in the comic thing, I remember that, but 
Anyways, I actually don't have much else to share about this. This was a fun game to go through. If anything, it kind of made me in the mood to go play Sly 3, but of course I don't have time for that, so... I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.